We pray that you would work uh, by, by the power, the efficacy, the efficiency of your spirit to give us Christ. And in the, in the power of the spirit, may we experience the power of Christ in the gospel. We don't live natural lives nor moralistic lives. And we want to see when we do. We want to see when we are living naturalistic and moralistic lives, even though we might use the word grace or God or communion even, or living upon Christ even. Help us to see the rotten fruits that we bear in our lives and that our family bear, and even our church family bears when we live upon ourselves and not upon Christ. When we're not really in communion with God, even though we'd like to think we are, we'd like others to think we are. It, it, it's, it's the externalism and formalism that we must fight. Living upon something else other than Christ that we must fight. And they won't fight it just by, uh, by, by giving it blows, by mortifying it uh, with our own strength. We mortify our own sin and our own belief, living upon the world by living upon Christ. We mortify self with Christ. And I pray that we would grow in it. Help us to learn to live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I encourage you to continue to memorize the key pivotal passages of Romans. You, you must be able, as the Puritans would call it, even, even I, I saw Walter Marshall saying, you, you wanted to reduce it to use, reduce the Bible to its use, usefulness, reduce the principles of Romans to usefulness. So can't be in your book, okay? Can't be in the notes in your book. It must be in your soul. And by, by learning the pivotal verses, you can begin to make use of a big book like Romans. Not just to understand it, but to make use of it. So there are the, all, the, all the paragraphs, and I encourage you to be able to summarize each paragraph in order to make use of it. You want to make use of it. Now we come to the third paragraph in the sections of Romans to learn to shepherd our souls. We've asked this question before, and um, I want to ask it again. What is the nature of the faith by which we live? There are there are elements of the nature of faith in this passage, one primary one in verse 16. And what, is it, what does it stand opposite? Somebody state it. Three words or four. Four words. State it in four words. Okay, faith, 
lives by grace or faith lives according to grace. Faith accords with grace. And what does that mean? What does that stand opposite? Faith does not accord with what? What? Okay, so, so, so that's a true statement. Faith doesn't accord with unbelief, but, but put something opposite grace here. What does faith stand opposite? Huh? In the broad scheme of Romans, what does faith stand opposite or grace stand opposed? What's grace opposed to? Huh? What? So, so now we've gone. Now we've gone a little narrow. We've gone a little narrow in scope. Yes. But, but what would come before? Okay. Grace. In grace, covenant of grace stands opposite works or covenant of works. And if we live by works, we'll experience condemnation and we'll condemn others. We, won't, we, we can't put another soul upon Christ if we're living by works. Now, what, what, do, we, what do we mean by living by works? And, what, and work that out a little, little bit more. We're still under the law. We're still living as if we're under the law. Okay, and we would say the merits of Christ's work, right? We're living on the basis of the merits of our work, and that's the difficulty. That and and that that's something that has to be um, consciously considered on a daily basis. Hourly, moment by moment, am I living upon Christ? And usually, I'm. I'm personally, I don't see it when I simply ask that question. I see it in the rotten fruits that my life bears. Yeah. So, so it works out in my relationship with other people. It works out. Personally, I have no love nor power to do good to another person personally. I won't be involved in their lives personally nor communally because now I'm going back to the nature of God himself. If faith uh, takes God in, then we will know that our Lives become more personal. We'll be involved in another person's life personally to love, to do good. We won't avoid. We won't uh, especially uh, do something uh, to make them pay, to, to hurt them, to provoke them to anger. But our lives will become more per- will become more personally involved, and I'll, I'm going to teach that in worship next Sunday and co- probably a couple Sundays. The working out of a, 
of a life that, lit, that sings the, the victory song, not in vain. We can live a vain life. Do you know, a lot of people are confused by this, that, that grace, uh, that we can fall from grace. What, what kind of grace can we fall from? Can you fall, can you fall from calling grace? No. Can you fall from uh, regenerating grace? No. Can you fall from justifying grace? No. Can you fall from reconciling grace? No. What grace can you fall from? Sanctifying grace, right? That's the grace from which we may fall, okay? And we can fall very hard if we go back to uh, relating to God and one another on the basis of works. Now, I want to, what I want, I want to come back to this, uh, but I want to review some quotes that we have uh, looked at before. So, J.C. Ryle. Faith rests in Christ. Faith works because of Christ. In justification, faith rests in the finished work of Christ. In sanctification, faith works because of the finished work of Christ. Faith rests. Faith works. If my sanctification, if my faith is passive in sanctification, I won't be sanctified. Faith doesn't rest in sanctification. Faith works in sanctification. You can't grow in holiness if faith is merely resting. It must both rest in the finished work of Christ and it must work because of the finished work of Christ. So the, so the soul that's finding solace, satisfaction, comfort, personal experience of uh, peace, joy, love. That soul is the soul that's engaged in, in work for Christ. Right? Do you, do you know the verse, I know, I know we've struggled with this some in the past, that, you know, f- faith lives upon Christ. Do you know the verse in, in uh John chapter 4, when, G- when Jesus is with the, has been with the woman at the well, and the disciples come back, and Jesus is not hungry for their food. And, and somebody says, oh, has he already eaten? And then how does Jesus respond? Do you remember? Okay. That's, that's, that's one response. But then what does he say to qualify what his food is? No? My food is to do the will of him who sent me. So it's not mere obedience to the will of God that's anybody's food. It's a food that, like Jesus, depends upon God in order to do his will because of the inherent nature of the will of God being infinitely good. 
my food, what is infinitely good, is, is what sustains me. We do need our daily food, but to live without feeding upon God, you won't have any spiritual vitality or fruit or bear fruit because of it. You get, you get weak when you don't eat? I get weak when I don't eat. Sometimes I do fast, but I, do, I don't fast as much as I used to just because my blood sugar gives me fits when I fast. But I still fast. I, I used to fast a lot and many days at a time. But generally now it's more like a 24-hour fast, generally speaking. If I don't eat, I'm, I'm weak, right? It's the same thing spiritually. If I don't eat, I'm weak. And usually I eat pretty good. So I don't like bad food. I like good food because I like the taste of good food. So I, I, there's a desire in eating Christ. And there's also nourishment. If you, if you don't see Christ as the greatest table fare in the entire world, you're not likely go to him for nourishment. So you need both. His desirability and his nourishment. You don't, go, you don't just go because he's nourishing. You feed your soul upon the beauty and the glory and the majesty of who Christ is. He is altogether lovely. And he comes to make the glory of the Father's love known to us. So that's something we desire also. So faith rests in Christ. Faith works because of Christ. We've said before, Romans makes this as clear as any book in the Bible. God justifies our imperfect person and makes us acceptable. But he also makes everything that we have to offer him acceptable because everything we have to offer him is imperfect. And it always will be. I've said this to you before. I don't see Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what is a technical term called. It's called epexegetical, meaning the second phrase defines the first. There's some passages that do the second phrase, the second word defines the first. For me, it does not. They're two different terms, and Romans explicitly shows how Christ's death is sufficient for our guilty law-breaking. And Christ's righteousness is sufficient. His obedience, his perfect obedience, is sufficient for our imperfect law-keeping. And, it's, and it's, we don't live upon his death, okay? You have to be careful about this. You don't live upon Christ's death. You don't hold communion with God on the basis of Christ's death. You hold communion with God on the basis of Christ's merits. You must be in the positive. Okay? How do you get in the positive? Christ's death, we have, a, we, have a, we have a sin debt and we have a righteousness debt. And Christ fulfills both of those. And if we only live upon his death, 
we're back to zero. We need merits. We need positive merits. We need capital. It's why I wondered for a long time why Sinclair Ferguson says this in the uh, Trinitarian Devotion of John Owen. It, it caught me by surprise. I, I didn't know exactly what he meant. That either we're living upon borrowed capital, or, and I don't know the other phrase that he says, borrowed, I live upon Christ. That's borrowed capital. If you don't live upon borrowed capital, if you don't live upon Christ and borrowed capital, you can't hold communion with God. Nor will your life be sustained by what you need most. Because you, we need a conscious awareness that I, His blood does cleanse me from my sin. It's what the, most of the reformers referred to as the passive obedience of Christ. His death in my place, his substitutionary death. That pays for my guilty law breaking. And, and I've said to you this before. It's not every day that I'm conscious that I've broken a law, but every day I'm very conscious that I fall short of the glory. Every day I know the only thing I have to offer God is imperfect. So, <clears throat> faith rests, faith works. Here's another. Faith engages God, God engages man. The active exercise of faith does not compromise the grace of Spirit's work in the application of salvation. It is the nature of faith that by it we actively receive Christ and justification in Him without contributing to it. Faith engages grace without transforming salvation into human merit. Now, I, I believe that in this, in this reference to salvation, Sinclair is looking at the whole of the Christian life, the way in which the Reformers and Puritans did. There are explicit references to conversion. But when you say something like, the nature of faith actively receives Christ and justification in him. Faith engages grace without transforming salvation into human merit. That's the whole of it. The other, <clears throat> faith engages God without transforming salvation into human merit. We're saved by Christ through faith. The saving power of faith does not lie in itself, but in the object of his trust. That is not widely understood, not even by many reformed leaders. So it's why I don't, I, I, I'm very narrow in terms of my recommendation to you of who to listen to and who to read. Primarily because of this. Many modern people in the reform movement will put you upon yourself to live upon your love for Christ. And they would say, you must not be saved because you don't have enough love for Christ. And it will put you in bondage. 
It doesn't, it, they, they'll describe freedom in Christ. But then when they go to teach freedom in Christ and they teach being sanctified by love instead of sanctified by your love or saved by your love, saved and sanctified by your love for Christ. You, I'm going to tell you, you only need Christ to make you savable. That's going backwards to Emeraldianism. That's going backwards to antinomianism. That is not reformed. Emeraldianism. Joseph Amiro was, a, was the one who all of history looks to, reformed history looks to, as the person who was a four-point Calvinist because he denied the atoning work of Christ. He, mean, he, he said Christ makes everybody savable. And then faith is what makes is what guarantees your salvation. Amiro was in the same uh, vein of, of uh, John Wesley and also Richard Baxter. And so many pastors look to Richard Baxter as a classic work of how to shepherd the soul. I'm sorry, it is errant. And it's no safe God. Because he will put you upon yourself to live upon the power of your faith. He will give faith an inherent quality that will guarantee your salvation and sanctification. That won't guarantee anything but failure. That is like like Job saying, I've made a covenant with my eyes, and then offering his wife's virtue as the surety for or the guarantee for his pure eyes. That's nothing but moralism. A lot of people look at that statement at face value and think it's a good statement. It is not a good statement. You have to look at it in the context. Is there anything wrong with having pure eyes? No. But but Christ is the guarantee of pure, pure eyes. Not somebody else's virtue. Christ is a surety. So it's a certainty that, that at that point in time, Job is not living upon Christ as a surety for anything. Faith engages God without transforming salvation into humanity. We're saved by Christ through faith. The saving power of faith does not lie in itself, but in the object of this trust. There's a, a total engagement of the believer, yet at the same time, grace is not compromised. The genius of that salvation is, by grace is that it engages man without diluting the graciousness of the salvation received. Those are tremendously great, they're just marvelous statements. All right, saving power resides in Christ. The saving power of faith resides not in itself. It's just not widely grasp. Warfield grasp it. Ferguson grasp it. Do you? Do I? Do we grasp it? Do I put someone upon themselves to live upon their love or live upon their holiness? You know, you're not bearing merit's fruit. You must not be born again. That's the way it's preached, you see. That's widely preached. Widely. But this is missing. 
It is a very... So, so we need to be born, we must be born again. But being born again does not make us holy. Being born again disposes us to a life of holiness. Because being born again disposes us to a life of faith. We must be careful not to make the new birth out to be more nor less than what it is. There's a real transformation. And the real transformation is it frees my will now to believe God for who he is. But you, must, you will put people in horrible bondage if you tell them, oh, you're not bearing fruit. You must not be born again as if that's the only thing that will cause a person to bear fruit. No. It's Holiness is not, there's nothing automatic to holiness. Nothing. I must live upon Christ in order to be sanctified. I must learn to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Talk to Drew about this. I, I, I told him I, several times when he was struggling intensely. But, but he was internalized. He was, he was looking up in a, and it was turned inward upon himself many times. And he said, I must not be a Christian. I must not be a Christian. I said, no, Drew. I have lived with you long enough to see some fruit in your life. You are a regenerate person, but you must not be turned inward. You must be turned outside yourself to live upon Christ, not to live upon yourself. And finally he began to grasp that he spiraled down. Every time he began to uh, be turned inward, his, his look at myself, turn inward to produce more fruit. Look at myself, look inward. You know, turn, turn me inward upon myself. And I asked him one day, I said, Drew, go ahead and go back and try to be born again. And then I want to ask you a question. If it doesn't solve your problem, what will happen to you? He finally got it. There's no, if you go back and try to redo something that doesn't result in a life of holiness, and, it, and, it, and you don't experience any, any uh, more help, any more change by trying to be born again again, it'll make you more uh, turn inward. And then you'll finally give up, you see. You're on a path of giving up if the only message you have is you need to be born again if you're not bearing fruit. That's not the message of Romans. Romans doesn't even talk about being born again. There's no reference to the new birth in Romans whatsoever. It assumes the new birth. So the new birth is not the problem, not the answer to the problem of powerlessness in the Christian life. The gospel is the answer to the powerlessness. Living by faith in Christ is the answer to the powerlessness. So saving, faith, saving power of faith does not reside in itself. 
You must be able to see when you're trying to make, you're trying to give faith, your faith an inherent quality of love. Oh, I must not have enough affection for God. I must not be a Christian. And see what that does to you. You'll spiral down on that. You'll not have the power at the end of the day to do good, to be wise enough, to do good to your children. Because you'll be spiraling down upon yourself. Or your husband. Or the husband to your wife. Or a friend to a friend. Look at the second. Uh, It is never on account of its formal nature that faith is conceived in Scripture to be saving. As if this frame of mind or attitude of heart were itself a virtue with claims on God for reward. See, he gets it. If my faith has an inherent quality of love, then I look to my love for Christ as the... the (coughs) The claim, the claim on God is my faith, my, my love. Look, I love you, Jesus, and this is my claim. You will not be helped, nor will you help anybody else living that way. I don't care how much you say I'm free in Christ. If that's the way you live, you're really not free. From a life of merit. Isn't it interesting? There's a lot of passages I suppose we get wrong. Because we we think more in terms of the merits of our love or the merits of faith. We're trying to look at ourselves and find salvation in us. Right, in us. I try. So so I was about to ask this question earlier. If you're living upon the merits of your love, do you really need Christ? Spurgeon's got a sermon, a single eye of faith, and he draws out that we have two objects sometimes. Two. Christ is an object, but we also have ourselves or something else as an object. It's a sermon. Gary, you sent me a link to that. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, I need to link. The single eye of faith. The single object of faith. But we live as if we're the object and Christ is the object. So, so how, would, how would you know if you made yourself up to be the object of your faith? So that's a good question.
it often works out in a comparison. I love God more than the other person. I have more works to show than the other person. Right. Instead of looking, yeah, takes my eyes off Christ. It does. So, so let's p- push on a little further here. We'll try to finish and uh, wind up with a question at the end. Christ saves through faith. See the see the next yellow. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. It's very clear, isn't it? And in this whole biblical representation centers so that we could not more radically misconceive it than by transferring to faith even the smallest fraction of saving energy. The smallest reason for my love or my obedience being my love or my obedience being my holiness being now so, so if I conceive of the new birth as giving me anything more than a new nature from which to live, that it actually makes me holy, then I'm giving then I'm give, then I'm doing what the Roman Catholic Church does. I'm making they they say they say actual holiness inheres in us when we become holy. Justification inheres in us. Does that make sense to you? So we're, we're living, we're really not living above any Roman Catholic when we live that way. Because we're teaching inherent holiness in us. There's no inherent holiness in us. There's inherent disposition to holiness. That's not the same thing. There's inherent disposition to faith. But that doesn't make us believe. We still must exercise faith. The just shall not automatically live by faith. The just shall actually, you know, live by faith. Say it again. That's an infused holiness, an infused grace. We teach, we teach that the new birth is an infusion, but it's not an infusion to make us holy. It's to dispose us to be holy. And, and they, didn't, they didn't teach grace, uh, justifying grace imparts or imputes. They said it imparts. They confused all of it. Huh? If you understand, if you understand so, so here, here's a problem. So, does it actually infuse faith in me? So now I don't have to believe. No. Coming from the source. They was they would most most reformed people like like Burkhoff will define regeneration as the transformation of the will whereby the first act of the renewed soul is faith. It doesn't infuse faith. It gives you the power to believe, but you must believe. 
See, that's another thing that's helpful to learn. What is it that belongs to God and what is it belongs to me? Faith doesn't belong to God. Faith belongs to me to exercise. But God gives me the power to believe. That's where his spirit's at work in us. And it's not faith until it's exercised. Say it again. It's not faith until it's exercised. That's right. When, when Peter takes his eyes off of Christ and when he's walking on the water, he sinks. When he puts his eyes upon himself, he sinks. Same with us. Say it again. Not received. That's right. So, so now it, I, I'm also helped when I understand faith's greatest exercise is, is placed within the context of communion. God gives himself and we receive by virtue of our union with Christ, by virtue of this spiritual union. And it's only by virtue of this spiritual union. We should make more of the baptism and the Lord's Supper, the symbolism and the nature of those being the two um, Ordinances given in the new covenant to remind us of the nature of the Christian life by virtue of union and communion. Union and communion. You have to be careful about that language though because, because a lot of Presbyterians mean you go back and think about just, it's just a mental transportation back to the time in which you were baptized. As if that's the most meaningful thing in the world. You have to be careful about that language. A lot of, a lot of Presbyterians use that language. And wrongly. Remember your baptism. And, and the, but we also have to, have to think about faith being something beyond just a mental transportation to So if, if faith is mere mentally transporting us to factual information about who God is or what the Christian life is, then, then I'm disconnected from the Spirit to lead me to live by the power of the Spirit. If, I'm just, if I just teach the Bible as factual information, then what I'll do is live by the power of my will. You have to be careful about that. Last, the last, uh, we could not more radically misconceive it than by transferring to faith even the smallest fraction of that saving energy, which is attributed in the scriptures solely to Christ himself. This purely mediatory function of faith is very very clearly indicated, which ordinarily expresses simple instrumentality. You know, they, they say, Faith is an open, empty hand that receives Christ. It's like an open, empty hand. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. 
That's, that's, what I, that's what faith is. Faith has no inherent quality of holiness. It has no inherent quality of um, love. 